Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Blessed be the reading of God's holy, eternal Word through the Apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that every soul in here will have an appropriate posture before this paragraph. I pray that Your grace will be extraordinarily poured out, lavished upon us this morning in the hearing. By You making known through Paul and by Your Spirit to our minds and hearts what You have sought fit to tell us here in this passage, this morning, to the glory of Jesus. Amen. What is so stunning about the way Paul opens up this short, brief letter is that he blatantly tells us things about God and about our salvation 
that almost nobody believes when they first become Christians. It is usually only down the line of our Christianity that God's children in Jesus Christ come to take Paul's words at face value. No wonder when he finishes verses 3-14, to he goes right on in to praying that God caused these shocking realities to be seen by the church. Open the eyes of the reader's hearts so that they will truly know the depths of your fatherly, eternal, saving love for them. My conversion to Jesus at the age of 19 was rather stark. It was from darkness to light. Not just in my head, but in my life, in my lifestyle. It was from a profound sense of meaninglessness and fear to unspeakable joy in my Salvation. Then, for years, daily, this book, the Holy Bible, including Ephesians, was the treasure chest of glorious truth after truth that was changing my life. But, through that time, for years, I can remember sitting alone in my room or at the beach, reading Jesus' words recorded in the Gospels, and reading Paul's epistles over and over and over again. And I would come across passages like our passage this morning in Ephesians 1, and I would say to myself, okay, I'm not mature enough yet to really understand this because clearly, I mean, what says that? But I'm missing something because we all know it can't actually mean what he says plainly on the surface of the page. For the first 12 years of my Christianity, and then something by God's grace happened, and I tell the story in my autobiography, 12 years down through my Christian journey of this transition. And I'm going to quote it for a moment. I write, It was a time that God, through the pages of Scripture, got really huge in my mind. His self-revelation was sitting there on the pages of the Bible for thousands of years. But with the help of Dan Fuller, my man-centered way of reading was turned upside down. All of a sudden, I could take the sentences in the Bible at face value. I no longer had to read clear statements in Romans and say to myself, well, I know it says that, but we all know it can't mean that. Instead, for the first time in my life, I was beginning to see God for who He really is. 
All over the Bible, I was confronted with truths about God and His ways that did not fit into my preconceived ideas. But like most people who come to faith in Christ, I assumed that we creatures were at the center of the universe. My presupposition was, look at humanity, and you see God. God was made into our image. If I were God, I would not be this way. And therefore, God cannot be this way. God had truly saved me twelve years earlier. I was born again by the Holy Spirit. I knew most of Paul's epistles by memory. I knew every significant Bible character. I knew that the one true God exists in three eternal persons. I understood that and knew that God can do anything He so chose to do. But during 1993, the overwhelming subject that stunned me was the subject of God of God Himself. End quote. If I were to put it in short, it was having my world turned upside down, which meant, by God's grace, I stopped reading the Bible with a human, man-centered worldview. And just for, just for argument's sake, maybe it's different than that, and God is at the center, and let's see what happens when I read the Bible. And we are in constant need to approach God and His Scripture that way throughout our Christian lives. You see, when you do that, as we walk down the road of our Christian lives, it's like an Easter egg hunt that a lot of our children will do in a few weeks. There are golden eggs of depth, of profundity, of the Father's love for us. That if you just find the eggs and you open them up and let them speak, you will be blown away. And there are golden eggs after golden eggs throughout the Scripture. And right before our eyes this morning, Ephesians 1 is one of those massive golden eggs. And it's there because it's meant to be understood. It's meant to be grasped with our intellect and our heart so that we would be deepened in our faith and so that we would praise God all the louder and all the truer and all the deeper. That's why it's here. And so this morning, what I want to do is just cover one sentence. If you look at your Bible there in Ephesians 1, that sentence begins in verse 3 and goes all the way through verse 14. In the original, in Greek, 
It is one long, complex sentence with participial modifier after participial modifier and relative pronoun after relative pronoun in whom, in him, in whom, on all the way through. It is one headache-producing sentence. In my experience... It has been the most difficult grammar and syntax that I have ever worked through in the Greek New Testament. And what I want to do this morning is to see the whole thing. I want us this morning to see the forest of verses 3 to 14 before we come back for weeks and get into the trees of the details of what is being. So that's my plan. So, let's look at it. Let's look at the large landscape, the large forest. Verse 3, it's a statement of fact. And Paul's structure here as a whole is actually rather simple. Verse 3, fact. Those who have been blessed by God with salvation... They in turn, and we sang this this morning, right, about God's praises. We'll turn them back on you. They in turn bless God, which means they praise Him for it. That's what he says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why we praise Him. And then in the rest of the passage, all the way through verse 14, Paul describes who this God is. He is the one who, the one who, the one who. And logically, everyone agrees on this, but by so doing, what he is doing is giving the reason, because of who God is, why we who believe praise Him so much. Because of the content of verses 4 through 14. So the structure is, why do we believers praise God? Answer verse 3, because He has blessed us in Christ with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why. That's the answer. That's all he says in this whole passage. He just restates it now. Because he goes on to say, generally, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And now the rest of it is an unfolding what he means by those spiritual blessings. And he does it with three sections. And in each section, you see one of the members of the Trinity highlighted. The first section is verses 4 through 6. The Father has done. The Father, the Father. Verses 7 to 12. The Son and His blood. And we're blessed in Him. In verses 13 to 14, the Holy Spirit 
applied all this to us. Okay? There's the structure. Let's look at the first section. Verses 4 through 6. Even as... All that is is a way to say, let me. this is what I mean about God's spiritual blessings blessing us. Even as He, the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So why do we praise our God and Father and adore Him and it is our joy? Answer, because He has blessed us by choosing us to be saved in Christ. And that action of choosing was before He created anything. Before any of us were created, God acted and chose And then Paul goes on to unpack that. In other words, what I mean, more specifically, what I mean is this. The Father chose us to be the ones whom He predestined to be adopted as His children through the person of Jesus Christ. He chose us to be predestined To be born again. This choosing, this predestining was not based upon anything in us. He says what it was based upon right there. See it in verse 5? According to the purpose of His will. Not yours. Now, Paul, okay, why did God do this? His answer is verse 6. Unto the praise of His, His glorious grace. He just said He did it so that the glory of His grace in election and in predestination unto adoption as His children, it would be known. It would be seen. If Paul's prayer is answered, the eyes of our heart may see that it would be preached, that it would be believed, and thus it would cause us to be astounded and to overflow in praising the glory of His grace. 
That's the first section of the forest. What he says. And that causes Paul to transition to the second section. To the second person of the Trinity. In verses 7 through 12. I'm just going to read through 10. Pick up at the end of verse 6 so you can see his transition. He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's Jesus. Okay, so in Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to the, His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. So now He says, it is in Christ, in Him, where our redemption being purchased out of God's wrath into salvation. We are redeemed. It is found in Christ. In Him is our forgiveness of sins. How did He do that? By Jesus' bloody, sacrificial death, He says. The reason that any of us are believers, well, let's use Paul's term, that any of us are in Christ, forgiven, redeemed, and thus we praise the Father. The reason any of us do that is not because God noticed something good and redeemable in us. I, I say that because Paul makes it clear why any of us praise God for a salvation that we have. Again, in verse 7, he did it according to the riches of His grace. Not the goodness of your receiving the news of Jesus. But He did it according to the riches of His grace which He lavished. To lavish, just think of a billionaire, no holds barred. He's just going way over the top at this banquet. Okay, can you reach for something deeper. This is what he's saying. He's just, he, God was extraordinarily poured out extravagantly his grace upon us. He says, why? Why anybody's a recipient of that grace? It is because of the riches of His grace. That is why any of us in here have come to cling to Jesus. Have come to see the truth of the Gospel and love what we see. Dear Christian, the Father chose you. And thus, 
He predetermined long before you were ever born. He predestined you long before you were ever conceived in your mother's womb. He chose you. He predestined you so that during your short, brief lifetime down here, as a sinner who deep down hated God, whether you're religious or not, that you would come across the truth of the Gospel and He would act and cause you to be born again, be adopted as His child. He would cause you to come to faith in His Son. He would cause you as a sinner to be moved out of the kingdom of darkness and to be united with His Son. To be in Christ. And all of that based on nothing that you did or that He even foresaw that you would do. Uh Uh-uh. It was all based upon the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. And the way God then carried out what He predetermined, Paul goes on to unfold in verse 9. In other words, God accomplished His predetermined plan to adopt us as His children. Verse 9, how? Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. How did he do it? When you see the word making known, it's okay. It, in the Greek, it's a participle, but it's an adverbial participle. And you think most of you would come up with the answer right now just in English. Making known. What do you mean by making known? He means because, or I mean by the way he did this, adopted us, was by making known to us the mystery of His will, which is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. So put together, Paul says here to us, the grace is lavished upon us by God bringing us individually into the subjective experience of seeing, of knowing, the mystery. The mystery means it was hidden. It was fuzzy until Christ came. And now that's unveiled. That mystery was unveiled to us through the Gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. And we who believe saw it. He made it known. See, Paul says the same thing. I mean, if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians 4 for a second. Paul says that same thing about God's action of making known in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 
He's already talked about those who hear the gospel and their heart is hardened. There is no light. They don't see it. Satan has blinded their, the minds of the unbelievers. And then he says, but to you, believer, God, who said, and he goes back to Genesis in the creation story, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Calls things into being that are not. Okay. That same God has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Another way to say it is the way Paul says it here. He made known to us the mystery. That's God's theology. Thus, that's Paul's theology. And, and Paul, come on, be practical. How does this work itself out, Paul? Come on. He actually tells us how this fleshes itself out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, I go throughout the world, I'm a missionary. And I preach to Jews and I preach to Gentiles. I tell them the Gospel message of Jesus Christ, the only Savior, His sacrificial, substitutionary death, His bodily resurrection. You must believe in Him in order to be saved on the last day. I tell them, and guess what happens? Nothing. Nobody believes. He says, we preach Christ crucified. And here, here's the result. It's a stumbling block to Jews. And it's foolishness to the rest of the world. The Gentiles. That's the response. Except he's got a comma in the translation and a but. But to those who are called from among both Jews and from Gentiles or Greeks. To them, something happens. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He just said, as we preach, God calls. And every single person whom He calls comes to faith. That's how Paul uses the word call here. But to those who are called, something different. Christ is the power of God to them and the wisdom of God. You remember how Paul summed this up with just different words? Like in Ephesians 1. You remember how he summed it up in Romans 8? Those whom He chose, that is what He means by foreknowledge there, those whom He chose, He also did predestine to become conformed to the image of His Son. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Every one of them. And those whom He called, He justified. That means every one of them came to faith. Those whom He justified, He glorified. That's future. Paul's going to go there in Ephesians 1 in a second. Every one of them. And so, Paul says here in Ephesians, the Father 
lavished. I mean, it was way over the top. He lavished His grace upon us. How did He bring that about in our lives? By making known to us the mystery of His will. Could you see it? Paul's saying that God's hidden plan, His hidden mystery from before He created the universe is now unveiled in the person and in the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. The mystery is that God, as he goes on to say, summed up all meaning of everything that is created, summed it all up in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 11, In Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, He says, we believers... We have been made heirs, inheritors of His grace, of the promise of eternal life. And then he says, why? Why have we been made inheritors here in verse 11? Answer, because. See, that's what Having been means because we have been predestined. Therefore, we have been made inheritors. Having been predestined according to... Again, he wants to drive this point home. According to... Nothing in us, but according to the purpose of the Godhead, of the Trinity, who acts based upon nothing outside of Himself, but acts always, ultimately, based Upon, quote, the counsel of His will. This is the same thing Paul is driving at in Romans when he wrote in chapter 9 of Romans. Though they were not yet born, referring to Jacob and his twin brother Esau, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
Not because of works, but because of Him who calls she, their mother, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. For he says to Moses, Moses, I will have mercy on the fastest runners. On those who quote the most Scripture. On the fattest people. On the prettiest girls. It's not what he's, how he says it. Moses, there's nothing outside of me that is the cause of my mercy. He says, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom. Can you wait? Who? Who? The fast people? On whom I have compassion. And so Paul concludes, so then, it depends not on human will, or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. That's what he means. In Him we have obtained an inheritance because we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And that second section then, leads Paul to the third section of verses 13 and 14. The work of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, is is this you? Listen to it. You heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So again, let's feel the flow of the whole sweep of the forest to get this again. In verse 3, he says, We believers, we praise our God and Father because He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Specifically, what I mean is this. He chose us to be in Christ. He did that before the creation of the universe. And He did it in order that He would predestine us to be adopted as His children, through the work of Jesus Christ, who is our salvation, our redemption, our forgiveness by His bloody substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. He says, don't you see it? God's grace has been lavished upon us. Okay, now that brings Him up now to the third person of the Trinity. He says, you get it? Think about your lives, believers. When you heard the message of the Gospel, when you heard the truth, and what happened? You believed. Do you not understand what happened to you? 
That was the Holy Spirit's work. You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. He came and He applied the cross of Jesus to you personally. You've been made alive by the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. That's why you love God. That's why you adore the Lord Jesus. That's the sign that you have been chosen. You see, that indwelling of the third person of the Trinity in your soul in a salvific, saving way is like a down payment on a house. One day that house will be totally yours. Well, not always, right? Because you, you, know, you might not be able to make it in forecloses. Okay. See, Paul turned it around. Not with God. God's the one that made a down payment. And it was infusing you during this time while you're still sinful with new birth by the Holy Spirit who now indwells you. And he says, that is guaranteed. Therefore, you will inherit he says the Holy Spirit's indwelling in the believer is our assurance. We will make it to the resurrection of the saved on that final day. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the down payment or guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Oh, I hope we all see as we fly over in a helicopter the beauty of this forest, of this one long sentence of verses 3 to 14. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat, but I'm going to say it again in brief. Here's the forest. In 4 to 6, He chose you to be the ones He predetermined would become His children through His grace in Jesus Christ. In verses 7 to 12, it is only in Christ where that grace is found. And we who are in Christ, we have experienced that grace by God acting, by God choosing us, and then having our eyes opened by new birth in order to see and believe the truth of the Gospel. In verses 13 and 14, in other words, he says, that's what happened to you when the Holy Spirit raised you from the dead when you heard the Gospel. Be assured, Paul says, He has guaranteed you will make it to the end. So you like that? There's an, uh... Okay. Because I deliberately skipped over. I mean, I touched on one, but I pretty much deliberately skipped over three statements in this passage. Really, it's only one statement stated three times. And these statements, they point to the humongous 
massive, all-encompassing goal and purpose for why God did all what you heard. For why He created a world in where sin would be so that He could be a Redeemer in His Son. So that He could choose before He ever created the elect who would be predestined to be in Him and would be sanctified and would ultimately be glorified. Three statements, Paul says. Here's the reason God did it that. So, I mean, so just uh, before we get to those, so ask yourself, why does God want Paul to tell us this stuff? Okay, stop. Let's just say all that's true. God has lots of stuff He has not revealed to us. And all this could be absolutely true. of how everything really did work behind the scenes. He doesn't have to tell us. So the question is, why does God will for us to know it? I mean, through Jesus, through the Old Testament, through the rest of Paul's epistles, it's just everywhere. But, but, but in Ephesians, just, just ask, just with Ephesians, why does he want Paul to tell us these deep, God-centered realities about our salvation? I mean, come on. I, I'm 19 years old and stupid, and I was, and fearful. And out of the blue, by finally opening up the Bible, which, okay, forget it, I didn't go there. I didn't know why it was happening. It just happened. And I loved Jesus. And he, he got me finally into the local church. And, and I mean, extraordinary joy. Unbelievable. I love Him. I'm no more born again today than I was then. Why do you want to tell me all this crazy stuff? I believe the Gospel. You raised Jesus from the dead. Some, I know I'm changed. I'm saved. So why down the road of my Christianity does He want me to grasp these truths that Paul pins about the goings-on behind the scenes of why? That wrath-deserving, putrid, 19-year-old, immature kid came to Jesus. Why? Why does He want to strip us believers of any reason to boast in our ability to come to Jesus on our own? Why does He want to strip us from any legitimate boasting over any other human being who doesn't see what I see in Jesus and they remain in their sin and they perish? But I have zero grounds to boast. Why does He want to strip that temptation and say, boy, I guess I'm smarter than you? Because at least I had a good enough sense to recognize the truth of the Gospel when I heard it. Why does He rip that away? from biblical believers. The answer to that question rings out three 
times in this passage. And it's at the end of all three sections of Father, Son, and Spirit. The first is verse 6. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Here's the goal. Unto, or to, the praise of His glorious grace. That's why. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, we might be, that means exist, unto the praise of His glory. And the third one is verse 14. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it unto the praise of His glory. What? All of our salvation from eternity past in choosing to the future inheritance that still lays up in front of us and to everything else in between was so that the glory of God would be praised by us creatures. That's what it says. And it says it three times. And without thinking very deeply about it or contemplating the infinite distinction between Creator and creature, this could sound sinful on God's part. It could sound vain. It could feel unloving. Actually, that is the experience that the 20th century writer C.S. Lewis went through. (laughs) You read the Bible at face value and hundreds upon hundreds of times, particularly in the Psalms, but elsewhere, God, if it's His Word, through the prophets and through the apostles, commands us, praise me. Praise me. Tell me how great I am. And Lewis really was bugged. And he tells about his transition. In his Reflections on the Psalms, he writes, But the most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. See, I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I, have, I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, 
players praising their favorite game. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do. What indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. And Lewis concludes, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is, that is, praise is the appointed consummation. End quote. You've got to feel this. If you follow that, for God to not command us to praise Him would be unloving. See, if I take you, okay, I'll be the God figure, set you down at the top of the Grand Canyon, spend a few hours here, have a, have, have a bunch of people you love, family, friends, and now you all hike down in the canyon. But nope, stop. You are not allowed to praise the canyon. You've got to shut your mouth Okay? You're not allowed to express it to others. You're tied up in knots. Because you know that as a human being made in God's image, part of it is I'm going to tell them. Like you've got to tell people about your favorite restaurant and you've got to get this meal. Somehow you're enjoying the meal even after you've eaten it. If you tell the groom on his honeymoon, Okay, now you're in covenant. That's all good. But look, you're, here's the rule. You're not allowed to look her into the eyes okay, during your honeymoon and tell her how beautiful she is to you and how much you love her and you adore her. You're not allowed to, to, to consummate this union in any kind of physical and emotional way. You're married, okay? You're married. Just let, let it go. See, it's not good when praise of a husband to a wife in a marriage merely is compliment. And I know we don't talk about women, how they always take it that way. No, no, you don't understand. You really are. And I like to say, okay. All right. See, God is God. He is eternal. He is utterly complete, utterly happy. He is fulfilled eternally within the Trinity, defined as His joy and delight in Himself. As the Father beholds all of His infinite, beautiful, joy-making perfections in the reflection of His Son, and the Son to the Father, and personified that community in the person of the Holy Spirit. That is God's eternal delight. And therefore, if He creates, and if He saves, and He holds back Himself from us as the object of infinite delight, which He is, and says, enjoy it and praise it, He would be less 
than loving. It would be like you finding you're hungry and you go to a restaurant and you're so hungry, it's been hours and they serve you heated up microwave corn dogs. But you know what? If you're hungry enough, corn dogs with some mustard and ketchup it can be pretty good and you're happy about it. But then you found out this guy is a master chef. And you found out the meal that they're getting over there, he has held back what is most delightful. That would be God holding back himself. See, Jonathan Edwards, back in the 1740s, in one of, in my opinion, one of the few greatest books ever written, titled, The End for Which God Created the World. I mean, Edwards, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him, but essentially he said this, because God is infinitely perfect, He must seek His own glory, because to seek the glory of any being or anything less perfect than God that would be sinful. He says, for any creature, self-glorification, praise me, praise me, is sin. But because God is infinitely perfect, He would be unrighteous indeed. He would be sinful if He did not glory in that which is most glorious, in that which is perfect and most satisfying, which happens to be Himself. And when He creates, and He fails to do exactly that through and in all creation and saving, He would be sinful. He is God. The greatest news in the world is that salvation is about God glorifying Himself through the mercy of the cross upon objects of mercy for all eternity, which is to glorify Himself in the mercy. That When we get it, that is the greatest possible news we creatures being saved could ever get. Because He says, I don't want you to just have corn dogs. I want you to experience the fullness of My joy forever. And therefore, this one long sentence in Ephesians 1, it is written so that we would get it. So that we would believe it, that we would love it, and thus we would praise His glorious grace. That is why one of the core aspects of the Christian life is to grow up. Paul will say that later in Ephesians. It is to grow up in the knowledge of who God is actually revealed in Scripture. Revealed in long sentences sometimes like this one. No, but I just... I just want to praise Jesus. I love Jesus. And that's why I don't even, you know, come on, we just got a few instruments in here. And there's no professional singing and light strobing. I want the feeling, you know. And oh, I just, so I want to just praise Jesus. 
You know millions of people, if they're not saying it, they're thinking that. In my response to them, if you really do want to praise Jesus, if you do really want to exist to the praise of His glory, His grace, then you better get to work by using your mind with the Scripture in order to see who God really is for the sake of genuine praise, genuine worship that's otherworldly. That's why He created it. That's why He sent His Son. That's why He chose and predestined and He will glorify. That's why Paul says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us who are in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's why Paul writes to the Colossians, If then you have been raised up with Christ, get to work. Seek the things that are above in the heavenlies. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Another way to say it is, seek to know Ephesians 1, 3-14. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So, let's continue, Sovereign Grace, to seek to know Him more truly and deeply in order to love Him more purely and to praise Him and reflect His glory throughout our lives, throughout our church, in this lost and dying world. I'm going to pray. We're going to hold the elements. Jesus, through His blood, Paul says, is what purchased all of this. For He was the Lamb, as if slain before the foundation of the world. All of it was planned before God ever brought anything into being that is not God. To the glory of His grace and the happiness and joy of vessels of mercy. And that's why we again and again partake of the blood and of the bread as vessels of mercy. Oh, Father, You are good. I pray that, yes, now, but in the week to come, in the weeks to come, in every soul in here, You would move upon us so deeply. That, that these very high and lofty things that we have heard from Paul would so penetrate that the result will be in the very mundane things of life, like lovingly taking out trash, saying a kind word, being amazed at the glory of your grace. Amen.